Hi, church family. As you're watching this sermon today, my family and I are actually already in the United States. Uh, we're spending some extended time with our families and resting a bit uh, for about uh, one and a half months. And one blessing actually from being online is that we won't be totally out of sight. We'll still see you at some of our online gatherings. Um, and also, please keep us in prayer while we're away as well. We want to share some meaningful times with our parents and siblings and for our kids, their grandparents, aunts and uncles and cousins. Um, and uh, we'll be praying for you definitely. We're continuing our sermon series in the book of 2 Corinthians that we restarted last week. We are on the, in the second main section of the book from chapters 7 through 9, which is Paul's personal appeal to the Corinthian church to follow through on their commitment to financially help the churches in Judea that were facing a severe famine. Today's passage is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 15, which is the heart of Paul's appeal. And today's sermon is entitled, Gospel Giving. You know, I grew up in the 1980s, and, and what a, a common advertising strategy at that time that charities frequently used was showing these heart-wrenching, guilt-inducing pictures of children in extreme poverty to raise money for their causes. And these kinds of appeals are now called poverty porn for the way that it misrepresents reality and manipulates people into giving out of guilt. I read that poverty porn is actually making a comeback these days, probably because it's a very effective way to raise money. But as Christians, the way to get people to give generously cannot be out of shock or guilt, but out of the gospel itself. Here's the one thing that summarizes Paul's main point from 2 Corinthians 8, chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. Follow through in giving in light of God's overflowing grace in Christ. I'll go through this scripture in three parts. Verses 1 through 5 are an example of, God, of generous giving. Verses 6 through 9 are an encouragement to give. And verses 10 through 15 are an exercise to grow in faith. And since this passage is pretty long, we'll read it as we go through each of these three main parts. I'll also share uh, some overarching, timeless truths for each part. Before we go any further, let's, ask, let's pray and ask the Lord for his help and his leading today in the time in the Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask at this moment for ears to truly listen and hearts to humbly receive your words today. We acknowledge that there are all kinds of distractions outside of us and inside of us too. And so we pray that your Spirit will overcome all those things so that we can be transformed by your word. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. All right, let's first read verses 1 through 5, an example of generous giving. This is God's word. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, 
but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Amen. So Paul started his appeal for the Corinthians to follow through on their commitment to give to other churches in need by bringing up this example of the Macedonian churches. And here's truth number one. Christians should aim to give generously and out of love for Christ to others. I want to explain a little bit more about the backstory of this part of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Paul brought up the promise that the Corinthian church had made to help the poor Christians in Judea, the province where Jerusalem is located and where the first church was started. During the reign of Roman Emperor Claudius, from AD 41 through 54, Judea had suffered from severe famines. During the, the church of Antioch was one church that, um, that sent a collection to help, and they sent Barnabas and Paul to deliver that. That's in Acts 11. And according to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4, Paul had already shared about this need to the churches in Galatia. And when he went to Corinthians, and, when, and they heard about this need in Judea, they asked Paul if they could send a collection of money to help their fellow spiritual family in Christ in Judea. So Paul recruited the churches in Macedonia, uh, that means the Philippians, Bereans, and Thessalonians as well, and they also wanted to give. And the gift that the Macedonians gave what was, was what Paul was talking about here as he wrote to the, the, to the Corinthian church again. Paul wanted the Corinthian church to know that the Macedonian Christians gave generously. The, their generosity was even more remarkable considering their situation. The Macedonians faced their own financial hardships. Extreme poverty were Paul's exact words as their severe test of affliction. Regardless of this, Paul noted that they still had this abundance of joy and also overflowed in a wealth of generosity. They contributed to helping the churches in Judea not by giving according to their means, that is, what would, what would have been appropriate uh, for what they had. They actually gave beyond their means. Paul also wanted the Corinthian church to know that the Macedonian Christians gave out of a sincere love for Christ and others. When they heard about the need, they literally begged Paul, for the favor, the privilege, the honor of taking, in part, taking part in the relief of the saints, referring to their brothers and sisters in Christ who were facing this severe famine. And this actually surprised Paul as he described it because they gave themselves. The word Paul used here in verse 5 can be translated, that, that is translated as gave themselves, literally means that they were dedicated that they gave their whole lives to the Lord first and foremost. They were surrendered to, to glorify Him in their lives. They trusted Him in enough to live in complete dependence upon Him and complete obedience to Him. They had a genuine, wholehearted love for Christ. And it was in this complete dedication to the Lord that they desired so badly to contribute to this cause. This is really amazing, isn't it? This is really beautiful, isn't it? These churches 
in Macedonia that were giving so generously despite their afflictions and poverty. And out of this wholehearted, dedicated love for Jesus, which made them love others, they sacrificed so that their spiritual family in Judea could live. And this is so much like Jesus. This reflected so much of Jesus. This is a wonderful picture for how to give financially to others, isn't it? And so, as you think about yourself, are you feeling perhaps some pressure now about how you give? For some of us, we are naturally inclined to be inspired to give like this. We want to give like this. We know that it is the moral, right, God-honoring thing to do, and we're pumped up to at least give it a try. I'm kind of like this. I'm an idealistic, religious, moralistic person, uh, and and that's, that's probably some of us here. Some of us are feeling really uncomfortable and really guilty right now because we know that we fall so short of this very high standard. We know that we can't give generously like this. The truth is, for all of us, is that all of us don't love Jesus this way. We don't love others like this either. And we we will find it difficult to give generously and joyfully like this. And what I'd say is, is that this picture of sacrificial giving is so contrary to our nature. In fact, it is supernatural. Okay, so let's, be, let's all be honest with ourselves and with God at this time. What happens? What happens when we face any financial problems? Not even the extreme poverty like the Macedonians, although some of us may have experienced this kind of extreme, extreme poverty before. You can think perhaps about it for yourselves while I tell you of, of, of how I've experienced of, of what happens to me. For me, I start checking my financial accounts obsessively. I worry about how I'll cover uh, long-term expenses like my kids' education. I get easily annoyed or upset for no reason towards my wife. I fantasize about having limitless wealth so that I could buy whatever I want. It gets very, very ugly in here within my own heart. Now, you might respond a little bit differently, but I'm sure that there's some of that ugliness within your hearts too. And what happens when we, faced our, when we face our own tests of affliction in our lives? And you can think about it for yourselves as well, but I'm going to tell you what happens to me. I become very sensitive about other people's opinions or actions towards me. I feel overwhelmed with guilt, self-pity, or hopelessness. I try to escape the pain and discomfort with diversions on YouTube, social media, and, and Netflix. I'm oftentimes short or rude to my family because I feel anxious. I don't want to be around people, let alone love them. You know, it's safe to say that all of us have faced tremendous tests of affliction over the last 15 months. In actuality, we faced them even before the pandemic. And in truth, we will face them after the pandemic as well. And no matter what the situations are around us, what gets exposed 
in those tests of affliction is the self-centeredness that is in all of us. We may respond in different ways, but I'm sure that that self-centeredness is in all of us because it's in all human beings. Now let's think about this timeless truth that Paul illustrated through the example of the Macedonian churches again. Christians should aim to live to give generously and out of love for Christ and others. Now, what we have to ask ourselves is, was this just a way to make the Corinthian, uh, the Corinthian Christians feel guilty about the ways that they were not generous and not giving and not loving? This is important because I really believe that this is not what Paul was doing. It would be a tragedy if we just looked at this as a way for works righteousness, that we just do enough for God to please Him. And in truth, the key is that all of us, that the, the key for all of us um, is actually hinted at what Paul said in verse 1. He said this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. You see, Paul wasn't comparing the Corinthians to the Macedonians, like your parents would compare you to your smarter sibling or to your more successful cousins. He was saying that it was the grace of God given to these churches that enabled the Macedonians to act in such generosity and in such love. He appealed to the grace of God available abundantly to us, uh, to us all to change us from the inside out. And this is a good transition to the second part. But before I do, I want to share uh, the first life application for us. Life application one, reflecting on yourself. How do you respond to times of financial difficulty or other afflictions? What keeps you from being generous and from loving Christ and others in these times? I think it's really important to spend time sorting out what goes on inside of us. This may be a painful exercise, maybe a little embarrassing for us, but I would say that confronting the ugly truth is always the first step to change. So let's courageously sift through how we respond in times of financial difficulties and, and other afflictions. And then let's humbly acknowledge what keeps us from being generous towards others and keeps us from being wholeheartedly dedicated to Christ and other significant people in our lives. It's helpful to do this regularly in our lives, to make it a habit to do some reflection. This is the first step in following through and giving in light of God's overflowing grace in Christ. So we've seen an example of generous giving in verses 1 through 5. Second, let's read verses 6 through 9, an encouragement to give. This is God's word. Accordingly, we urged Titus, that as he started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Amen.
And so Paul here clarified that he was not commanding the Corinthians to give financially to these, these churches in need, but he appealed to the gracious sacrifice of Christ. And here's truth number two. All Christians can give generously because of the grace of Christ at work in them. Paul and his team spoke the gospel into the, Christ, into the Corinthian church with respect to this area of giving. According to verse 6, when Titus was sent to Corinth to deliver Paul's tearful letter to them, he was also supposed to remind them of their commitment to give to the needy churches in Judea. But Paul here is clear that Titus wasn't supposed to just guilt them into, into following through in their, in their giving of money. He told Titus that he, should comp- that he should complete among the Corinthians this act of grace. In other words, Titus was supposed to help them to give generously in light of God's grace overflowing in their lives. Titus was to remind them of this. Paul expanded on this directly to the Corinthians in verse 7. The church in Corinth was incredibly gifted. He told them, you excel in everything because of the grace of God that was at work in them. They excelled in faith. This was an act of God's grace given to them. They excelled in speech. This was an act of God's grace. They excelled in knowledge with incredible teachers uh, like Priscilla, Aquila, and and Apollos. Also an act of God's grace. They excelled in earnestness. Also an act of God's grace. In the same way, giving generously was an act of God's grace that the church had an opportunity to excel in. This is an interesting thought, isn't it? Giving wasn't for just the special or the able. It was something that God could do in any one of us because it came out of His grace alone. The reason that Paul said that the ability to give generously was for all genuine Christians was because of the gospel that he stated in verse 9. This really is the crux of Paul's reasoning here. He wrote, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul is not talking about money here. He's talking more existentially here. I'm going to paraphrase Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 to here to expand on this. Although Jesus was God, he gave up his divine privileges and made himself a servant. Jesus emptied himself of everything he had, including his own life, by dying on the cross as the substitute sacrifice, the one and only substitute sacrifice for the sins of the world, for the sins of you and me. This is how he served us, by giving his very life for us. And in this way, the richest being in the universe became, which was God himself, became poor. And in response to this amazing, great news, how do we look at ourselves then? This is what Jesus taught in the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 3. God blesses those who are poor and realizes their need for Him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So think about what Jesus taught here. The spiritually poor are blessed when they realize 
their total depravity and helplessness to save themselves because it helps them to see the magnitude of the gift of God's grace that is Jesus on the cross. Jesus made himself poor in his incarnation, suffering and death on the cross. But it is through this poverty, his poverty, that we who are spiritually poor can be made spiritually rich. Listen carefully here. This means that the riches of God's grace are now available to Christians, not just in a little trickle, but in floods. For our friends here who are not yet believers in Jesus, I want to invite you to receive this gift of God's grace by faith as you acknowledge your own spiritual poverty and your need for Christ's work on the cross. This is God's gift of grace that he's making available to you. So what does the phrase, the riches of God's grace, actually mean? I don't want to use it as just a meaningless cliché It really means something. I'll try to piece it together with some biblical thoughts regarding this. The riches of God's grace means that in Christ, His mercy, favor, patience, and steadfast love never runs out for us, even in our ongoing sins. It means that in Christ, we are now redeemed and adopted as children of God with all the privileges of as heirs of His glorious eternal kingdom. This means that in Christ, our Heavenly Father knows exactly what we need better than we do and will provide for us perfectly. It means that in Christ, He will bring about the partial restoration of families, work, and all other areas in our lives on earth and the full restoration of all those things in our lives in heaven. I can go on and on about the riches of God's grace. So what does this have to do with money and generous giving? How do we apply the gospel regarding those situations when we face financial difficulties or other tests of affliction in our lives? Like I mentioned before, for me, when I have financial struggles um, or or stresses, my sinful nature comes out in loads. Let's just take one example from what I I shared before. Sometimes... What I do is I fantasize about having limitless wealth. By the riches of God's grace, He convicts me that this is not a healthy way of thinking and I reflect on how I'm responding and what is coming out of my heart. In my reflection, I can identify the idols of comfort and security that I think money brings. The riches of God's grace means that His forgiveness in Christ never runs out as I confess this sin of idolatry over and over again because I keep falling into it over and over again. And I'm full of gratitude for His grace in my life and there's a continual shifting in my perspective. I can see that my true contentment is in living for the will and purpose of God and that He has already given me His best in His Son and promises to take care of me, uh, take care of me as my heavenly Father. Jesus made, made himself poor to make me truly rich with a life of forever being forgiven and forever being loved, now knowing and serving him and experiencing the restoring work in my heart 
to understand what truly is valuable and worth living for in my life. Paul said something very important in verse 8, which was that he was not merely commanding them to change their external behavior. Instead, he invited them to process the situation through the gospel in order to prove their love, which simply means that they were test, they were to test through actual use. Their under, they were to, to test through actual use their understanding and faith in the gospel that Jesus became poor so that they, by his poverty, might become rich. Actually, this situation was God's grace in their lives as well. It was also a chance for them to learn the gospel a little deeper. It was a chance for them to be sanctified in this area of their lives of financial stewardship a little deeper. You know, money is a sensitive and important topic that deserves to be addressed in the lives of Christians. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ, that is, being a believer, follower, and student of Him is not just about the spiritual stuff, but also in the very practical and tangible things of life as well, like money. This is why I encourage people to keep track of their expenses and to use a personal budget. It should be included in our discipleship of, of each other. It should be included in family life between husbands and wives and, and between parents and children. It should be part of church life too, no matter what kinds of awkwardness or conflict that it creates. Just like Paul wrote in the previous section, which we learned last week, we are assured that what we can sharpen and challenge each other in the area of our finances because we love each other and we want Christ to be honored in our lives. And we can further experience the joy and freedom of giving generously because of the grace of Christ at work in us. And, and before we move on to the, the final part, I want to share the second life application for us as, a, as an encouragement to give. After reflecting on your own heart, meditate on the benefits and riches that you have in Jesus Christ. How does the gospel address your heart issues that are being exposed? Let's appreciate how Paul so beautifully articulates and applies the gospel to the Corinthians in light of this issue regarding giving generously. Now you and I, we may not be able to express it so eloquently, but let's also remember that it's not a secret. It's not for only the special people that know how to do this. In Christ, we all have the Holy Spirit and the Word to counsel us and to guide us through this exercise of preaching the gospel to ourselves. Also, let's invite others into this process. Friends, mentors, spouses, to help us see how we respond in these times, what heart issues are involved, and how the gospel speaks into us regarding those issues. This is the second step in following through and giving in light of God's overflowing grace in Christ. So we've seen an example of generous giving in verses 1 through 5, an encouragement to give in verses 6 through 9. Now, third and last, let's read verses 10 through 15. An exercise to grow in faith. This is God's word. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. 
So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need. Uh, so your, your abundance at the present time should, should supply their needs, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Amen. Paul explained that what mattered more was not the amount of their gift, but hearts of faith and readiness to give whatever they could. Truth number three is this. Christians grow in faith when they have opportunities to give generously. Look at how Paul rounds out his appeal to the Corinthian church in verse 10. He said that it was his judgment that it would actually benefit them if they followed through on this commitment to give to the church's suffering and famine in Judea. He specified that they had expressed their desire to make a collection for those churches in need, but it, it had been about a year since they had expressed this, and they had actually not done it yet. So after sharing this example of generous giving uh, in the Macedonian churches and explaining an encouragement to give in light of the gospel addressing their hearts, Paul exhorted them in verse 11 to finish doing it as well, to match their desire to help with their completion to help. You know, there's something important about following through on what you say you will do, right? Jesus told a parable about a father and his two sons in Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 through 32. The father told his first son, go and work today in the vineyard. And that son originally said, no, I don't want to and I will not. But later on, he changed his mind and actually went to work. The father gave his second son the same command, go and work uh, today in the vineyard. And his, this son originally said, yes, I certainly will, but actually he never went out to work. Now the second son might have sincerely desired to go and work, but he never actually did it. The one who actually did what his father wanted was the first son. Something to think about from this parable is how genuine repentance and faith is shown in what we actually do. So this is why Paul said that it would benefit the Corinthians if they followed through on their commitment. This was an exercise of their faith to obey completely what the Holy Spirit had put on their hearts to do. Not only did Paul want them to follow through on what they desired to do, but Paul wrote in verses 12 through 15 that they were to give according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. What would please and honor God was not the amount that churches gave, but their willingness and action of giving. The Macedonian churches faced their own financial crises, but they were willing to give what they could. And in comparison, the city of Corinth was a wealthy city, busy with bustling commerce and trade. The church in Corinth probably reflected this as well. 
And Paul wrote that at the present moment, while they had, uh, while they had abundance, it was fair and it was right for them to help bear the load of the collection to help those poorer churches in Judea as well. And in light of this, in verse 15, Paul quoted Exodus 16, verse 18. He was referencing Israel's exodus through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. The people of Israel worried and complained about what they were going to eat, and God provided this special stuff. They called it manna, every day for them to eat while they lived in the wilderness. It showed up in the morning, and people collected it. They were to collect enough for themselves, for their families, and for those who were not able to collect for themselves. And every day, everyone had exactly what they needed to live. No one had leftovers. No one lacked for food to eat. The principle is reiterated here. If we have abundance, we have the responsibility to be generous and to help others who are in need. And it's not about the quantity or amount of what people give. It's about the quality and the heart of giving according to what God has given you in this, in this season. The lesson that Paul was sharing to the Corinthians was that God's people needed to trust God to provide for their existence on earth. It was God who owns all things, manna and money both, and takes care of them. Those who have been given more are entrusted to steward what they have faithfully. To steward simply means to manage something that belongs to someone else. And so the application for manna or money is the same and simple. Those who have excess can use it to help those who have less. God uses people to provide for others' needs. It's an exercise of faith. It was an exercise of faith for the Corinthians to follow through and actually collect the money and then actually send the money over to Judea. There was a risk involved. What if the next season of their lives, they were the ones who were facing famine? But they had to trust God. They had to trust that God would provide for them and that in their season of need, God would supply that as well and he would probably use others to do that. You see, Christians grow in faith when they have opportunities to give generously. You know, when it comes to giving generously, I think we might all say, of course, this is a great idea. It's a basic part of life as a Christian. But in reality, the execution of this in our lives often does not match up to the desires of our hearts, or at least the thoughts that are in our heads. While researching for a different project I, I had recently, I found this publication called The State of the Church Giving Through 2017 by an organization called Empty Tomb, Inc. Um, according to this, American Christians, so this is Christians in the United States, uh, give just 2.58% of their income to, their ch uh, to the church as tithes and offerings. Actually, 25% don't give anything at all. Okay? Uh, this is still a total of $103 billion that is given to churches in America. Now, 85% of that $103 billion goes to church expenses, like salaries for the staff and upkeep and renovation of facilities. 13% of this $103 billion goes to local outreach in their own cities and communities. 
and only 2% is left for all kinds of missions work. And so out of the 2.58% given from American Christians to the church, only 2% of that 2.58%, that's less than 0.05% given by American Christians is used to bring the gospel to every nation and to help the poorest of the poor in the world. Now, I don't have numbers like this in Indonesia, but it's reasonable to guess, since this is human nature, that it would be similar here. You know, I generally think that we are all nice, well-intentioned people. We have a genuine love for Jesus. We grasp how He has redeemed our lives, paying the price for our sins and adopting us into His family. We excel in much as individuals, and therefore we excel as a church in God's grace a lot. So I don't think that we are greedy in the extreme sense of the idea, like a cartoonish villain, you know, sitting in his vault, counting all of his gold and cash in an evil way. I think we might even intend to tithe and give generously. But following through on that desire to give is hard, and oftentimes we fail. This is why we do talk about setting aside the time and energy to track expenses and to use a budget. Tracking expenses tells you where you actually spend your money. and The, the numbers don't lie. Using a budget helps you strategize to give more intentionally within your means but generously and by faith to the things that are important to God. There are plenty of great examples of how our church members give generously to the Benevolence Fund, to BDH, or to just random gifts as the Lord leads you. Praise God for these acts of God's grace in our lives and in our church. I really do praise God for that. My aim is not to put pressure on those giving already to give more. My aim is not to guilt those who are not giving enough. But it is for all of us to grow in faith when we have opportunities to give generously. Before we close out, here's the third life application as an exercise to grow in faith. What ways are you led by God to develop in your financial stewardship or to give tangibly in light of the gospel and as an exercise of faith according to, your, to what God has given you? For some of us, we need to start with those fundamental financial habits of tracking our spending and using a budget. There are a lot of good books and online resources to learn more about financial stewardship. Also incorporate this into your discipleship relationships. If you're good at this, offer this to others. If you're bad at this, ask others to help you. Also, as you walk with the Lord, ask Him. Ask Him about the ways that He would like for you to give generously. What are some strategic gospel ministries that you can give towards? As you are in the Word and in prayer, I believe the Holy Spirit will guide you along in this journey. Well, that's it for me. May we follow through in giving in light of God's overflowing grace in Christ. We'll go back to our live Sunday celebration in Zoom and respond together in this word. God bless you all.